Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 8. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. For he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that even as we believe that you have risen from the dead, you would impress it upon the deepest part of our hearts today by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that as we open up the scriptures and uncover with our very own eyes, Lord, what occurred 2,000 years ago, that Christ, you would, by your Holy Spirit, open up the eyes of our hearts to understand in a deepened way, that we would not just find it intellectually agreeable that this is what happened, but Lord, we would, we would be thrilled by it. Christ, would you thrill us this morning? For it's not enough that we would look into these pages and be excited that you have risen from the dead, but we pray, Lord, that our hearts would now begin to rise as the Holy Spirit impresses upon us a deeper revelation and a knowledge and an understanding of Jesus Christ, the exalted one. And so do that, Lord. Make yourself really big and awesome in this place. Brag about yourself. Boast about yourself. Declare wonderful things that we do not yet know that we might crowd around you and sing from the top of our lungs that we are thrilled, that we are serving, following, and enjoying Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone that has ever walked the earth and has ever gathered together and has ever breathed or lived can find one thing in common with one another, even if it's to a fleeting or a varying degree, that we all, in one way or another, desire a sense of validation, whether it's from others or ourselves, or something we've done or life itself. And you see this type of pattern emerge even at an early age. I know I did. I know many of you did. It's like a pattern that follows you throughout the rest of your life, even in elementary school where you are just being uh, placed in, uh, in school studying. You, you've got this enormous pressure on you, at least by your parents and by your school teachers, to do well. Why? So that you can be placed uh, possibly in the college of your dream or the high school of your dreams, maybe a private school, high school of your dreams. No one dreams about high school. 
But perhaps for, for some of you that look like a private school instead of a public school. Something better. Something that would look good on your resume. Why? To validate your reason for moving on. And in high school, you would begin to uh, pile on AP classes. You would uh, pour yourself into uh, anything from drama to, if you're that zealous, to being the, the class president. Anything that looked good on a piece of paper so that that college of your dreams would accept you. Why would you want to be accepted into that college of your dreams? So that they can set the pace for the rest of your life. Validation. If I can just go to that school and get a degree from them, then I will be validated. But it wasn't even, that wasn't even enough to, to go to your dream college or to get that dream bachelor degree. You also had to be valedictorian. You also had to do uh, as best as you could. You had to get a 4.0. In, in order that, after uh, surpassing college, you would get the job of your dreams. And once you got the job of your dreams, it still wasn't over. You would pour yourself into that. Working countless hours a day. For what reason? To make money? Sure. What else? To gain status. To gain recognition. To impress your boss. To get tenure. Whatever it is. To validate your reason for moving on. Make enough money. You get a a, a good enough job. You start to live comfortably. You develop a lifestyle that you feel like you deserve. And then you have kids. And anything that you failed to do to validate your reason for existing up until this point, you have a second wind as you begin to pressure your children to live in all of the ways that you failed to do, almost living vicariously through them. Perhaps this is true for some of us. Now your children have a pressure to validate themselves in light of their parents. And as you retire... You hit, a, you hit a, new, a new crack in the road as you experience this empty nest syndrome and your kids are gone, you have retired from your job, you don't know what you're doing and you're asking yourself the same question you were asking yourself when you graduated high school. What am I doing with my life? What can I do with my life to give me a sense of purpose? And that, that feeling of validating yourself never seems to go away no matter what you do. And for Christians, we even bring that desire to be validated into the Bible. When we open it and we ask of the text, what does the Bible say about me? How does it validate me? How does it speak to my life and my situation? And for some of us that read it enough times, we find that our equilibrium is slightly upset because the Bible is not primarily about you or me. The Bible is primarily a book about God, and the Bible finds its fulcrum in a single event called the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which God, in the book that is about God, through the resurrection, validates His Son, Jesus Christ. And in the resurrection, He seeks to make much of His Son. How does he do that? I think we'll find through Matthew chapter 28 at least three ways in which we'll do that. And I want to give them proper treatment today. One, the resurrection was unprecedented. That's how God made a big deal out of Jesus Christ. The resurrection was unprecedented. Two, the resurrection was unambiguous. And three, and perhaps most important, the resurrection is and forever will always be unavoidable to all who are confronted by it.
Here's what I mean by the resurrection being unprecedented. I mean no one up until the point in which it happened was ever expecting Jesus Christ to rise. Even though the Old Testament hinted to it and foretold about it and gave us a little bit of a trailer that this was going to happen, nobody, even the people closest to Jesus, would have ever expected that he would rise from the dead. Even Mary in the text, who is arguably one of the closest disciples to Jesus, was on her way to the tomb for what reason? Verse 1 and verse 5, the angel says, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but I've got news, he's not dead anymore. Even Mary herself was on the way to care for the body. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of humanity. Now, people have been raised from the dead, right? Even in the Bible, we see multiple people coming alive from the dead by the power of God. We see Elisha raising that child from the dead. We see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We see Paul in very humorous story killing a person by his sermon, I think. Little boy falls asleep because his sermon is too long, topples over off this building, dies. Paul rushes down, picks him up from the grave. Awesome. If I could do that, I would preach for three hours, man. People have been raised from the dead in Scripture and in history. I'm not saying that that in itself is spectacular or unique. I'm saying that even those people who have been raised from the dead is still very unlike Christ being raised from the dead. And here are the two biggest differences. One is those people had to be raised by another. No one has ever pulled off their own resurrection. Two... The boy who was raised from the dead, Lazarus who was raised from the dead, the child who was raised from the dead, all eventually would die again. Nobody has ever stayed resurrected until Jesus steps in on the scene and for the first time in history pulls off his own death and his resurrection and forever will remain alive for death could not hold him down. All of these men eventually would die. None of them could raise themselves up. Jesus comes in, not to just replicate a past miracle, but to do it in a way that would blow the mind of all who are watching. Second thing about the resurrection is it's absolutely unambiguous. So even though Mary and the disciples did not see this coming, once they saw it, they saw it coming. It was absolutely clear and unambiguous. From Matthew, I want to pull out three things that make it absolutely stark and clear. The angel, the earthquake, and the empty tomb. Now just for a moment, let's talk about angels just for a second. I want you to imagine in your mind, don't talk about it, just imagine in your mind what an angel looks like. Okay, go. Okay, what's, what's it look like? Perhaps for some of us, and this is what I always thought about angels, was that beautiful Hallmark card image of that Cupid. You know, that old-fashioned painting of the Cupid just like crossing his arms, the wings coming out of his back. Just this dainty butterfly, this little child that goes around, flying around like a dragonfly from God. We sometimes water down this sense of, of angelic beings. They're cute, they're pretty, they fly around, they play harps, they sit around on clouds all day, and most of all, they sing. Probably hymns, maybe children's nursery rhymes. I don't know. Whatever it is that they do, angels are beautiful creatures and beings. Beautiful they may be. 
but Hallmark card versions, they will never be. I think from the narrative that Matthew gives us, we can at least describe them in three different ways. One, angels are powerful. In the text before us, it says that the angel, because of a violent earthquake, descended from heaven and approached the tomb and rolled back the stone. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. The difference between a rich man's tomb and everyone else's tomb back in the first century was that instead of being buried in a hole in the ground, you were buried in a tomb that was often in the middle or in the side of a a, a cliff or a wall or a piece of rock. It was burrowed out. So you ended up walking into a room and that enclosure had to be sealed off by a stone. Now the stone that would have sealed off Jesus' tomb would have gone along these rails. It was more like a flat stone, like a coaster that you would have on your dining room table. Except this stone would have weighed between one and a half to two tons. And it would roll along these rails and and, and be as heavy as it was so that people could not break in. Grave robbers could not break into a rich man's tomb and steal all of the stuff in there. One and a half to two tons. And we're told in almost a casual manner by the gospel writer Matthew. Oh yeah, angel from heaven, descended from heaven, sat on it, rolled away the stone and was sitting on it. As if in a casual, almost humorous way saying this was no problem for this angel. Rolls away the tomb. Not only are angels powerful, but they seem to be very terrifying. They're not cute. Everywhere you see an angel in the Bible encounter a human, you almost always see that human fall on their face as if dead. And in this place, you see the Roman guards falling on their face, becoming like dead men, which is a a fit of irony, considering that the dead man in the tomb became alive and the live man outside of the tomb became dead. Everywhere you see this encounter, you see humans falling to their face because they think they're going to die, which brings us to a third thing that angels always seem to be, and that is absolutely glorious. His appearance was like lightning. His robe was as white as snow. Meaning that angels, being in the presence of God, exude a part of that glory. You think angels are radical? Isaiah chapter 6 describes a type of angel called the seraphim who cover their eyes with a set of wings as Isaiah describes in order to be in the presence of the living God. Presuming that God is so glorious that not even these angelic beings can stare him in the face. But angels being in the presence of God are powerful. They are terrifying. They are glorious. Two, there was an earthquake. And Matthew says that there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. Suggesting that either there was a violent earthquake that came when the angel came or that was the means by which the angel used to open the tomb. Whatever it was, it came at the same time. And therein lies nothing in the tomb. So I want you to just imagine the scene that Mary walks in on. Keeping in mind also that Roman guards were not Galilean fishermen. They were trained killers who were trained by the empire of Rome to take care of and to absolutely destroy anything that came within a six foot radius of their spear. 
You've got about six of those guarding a tomb. You've got a machine, all rendered impotent. So Mary walks in on the scene, totally expecting to clean up Jesus' body. And there she encounters a powerful, terrifying, bigger-than-life, glorious being, an angelic being that came out of the clouds, rolled away the tombstone, and is comically sitting on it like it's a pebble. While in the meantime, a Roman guard full of train killers are on their faces like they're dead. And this is what Mary encounters. It was absolutely unambiguous. But third, and perhaps most importantly, it is unavoidable even to this day. You see, it's not necessarily that special that the event was unprecedented. It's not necessarily special, per se, that it was unambiguous. We do a lot of unambiguous things in our lives from day to day. And all you have to do is watch the Oscars or the halftime show, uh, halftime show of the Super Bowl to find something that is unprecedented in human history. Things are done new on a constant basis. Those are not special. What was special was the unavoidable nature of what just happened. For in the resurrection, God decides to set his foot down and confront all of humanity with several truths about Jesus Christ. And these truths are unavoidable. The resurrection then provokes a response from all who are confronted by it. We find some of these things come out as the apostles, filled with the Spirit, would begin to preach. Their sermons were all wrapped like a burrito around the resurrection of the Son of God. And in their preaching, they desired to present Christ in light of his resurrection. Here's some of the things that we see. In fact, I, I just want you to see it for yourself. Turn, keep your finger here. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Actually, we'll just read the first five verses. In Paul's preaching, he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Here it is. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the declaration. Who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. So you want to know what God is declaring through the raising of his son? He is declaring that Jesus is the son of the living God. And with that sonship, with that unique relationship is himself God. Turn to Acts chapter 2, just back one book, verse 33. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 through 36. Now, after the apostles see the resurrected Lord, the Spirit of God falls upon Peter. He begins to preach, and this is what he says. Let's take it up in verse 33. Therefore, actually verse 32, God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. 
Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what both you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but Jesus himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, he declares, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, listen to this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You want to know what God is attempting to declare to humanity? Jesus is Lord and Messiah and the Son of God. But that's not all he is. Jesus is also the Savior of the world. Turn a couple chapters ahead to Acts chapter 5, verse 30 through 31. Peter and the apostles, having already been warned by the religious structure of that day, stop preaching about Jesus. You're preaching about Jesus. Don't preach about Jesus. We don't like the Jesus guy. Peter and the apostles begin to preach about Jesus and accompany that with signs and wonders, which stirs up the pot a little bit. The religious leaders pull in Peter and the apostles and rebuke them, saying, what are you doing? We told you not to do this. And this is their response. Acts chapter 5 verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Oh, excuse me. Verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What is God declaring and confronting humanity with about Jesus through the resurrection? This is the son of God. This is the Lord of all. This is the savior of the world. That's not all he is. Jesus is also the judge. Turn ahead to Acts chapter 17, verse 30. There's so much on this, but I'll just end on this one. Paul, preaching in Athens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is confronted by the people in Athens. He begins to preach to them the gospel, and he says this in verse 30 and 31. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because, verse 31, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of the Son of God is absolutely unavoidable in the fashion and in the sense in which God in doing so, in pulling that off, is confronting all of humanity, everyone that has ever lived, confronting them with the person and the work of Jesus Christ, declaring emphatically, this is my Son, this is your Lord, this is your Savior, and this is the judge who will come back to judge the living and the dead. What will you do with him? And everyone from here on out will be forced by uh, one way or another to make a decision based on the Son of God. But you have to handle Jesus on his own terms. You can either reject him or embrace him, but you have to do it on his own terms. And these are the terms that he listed. 
You have to deal with the fact that he claimed to be the son of God. You have to deal with the fact that he claims to be Lord over the universe. You have to deal with the fact that he claims to be Savior. And that implying by his saving nature that we are to be judged by our sin and we need a Savior. You have to deal with Christ on his own terms. But people don't. They didn't then, and they do not now, because perhaps of the confrontational and declarative nature of the resurrection, we have various opinions about Jesus. And this is just a natural part of how we operate. We love all of the good stuff that Jesus taught, and we love all of the good stuff that Jesus did. We just have a problem with the confrontational stuff. We're independent, we're autonomous, we're self invested. We're our own people. We're our own lords. We're our own saviors. We're our own judges. Nobody can judge us. It's that stuff about Jesus that we have the hardest time. And so you find that in general, there are two different types of responses to Christ. Going all the way back to the open tomb with the angel. Perhaps it's like the guards who in verses 13, back in Matthew, chapter 28, in verse 13 and, uh, through 15, would go to the priests not to repent, but to tell the priests, look what happened. What do we do about this? In verse 13, the priests assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, verse 13, and told them to say this. His disciples came during the night and stole him while you were sleeping. So listen up. If this reaches the governor's ears, we'll deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So the guards took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. So the guards who were on the scene, who saw the angel descend from heaven, who saw the open tomb with the two-ton stone rolled out of the way, the super angelic, powerful, terrifying, glorious angelic being sitting on the rock, tomb being empty, falling down dead, decided rather instead to accept that as reality, to make up a palpable story about the event rather than believe in it. And this still continues today. Either in theory or in function, based on how we live our lives. Perhaps it takes the form of a documentary, so-called, that always seems to come out on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, always around March 1st in time for Easter, saying something to the effect that there are other myths, Osiris, Atticus, Horus, Mithras, the like, whatever you want to pick and choose, of people coming from the dead. So Jesus is no different from them. In fact, Jesus was a ripoff. Or other claims that perhaps Jesus was a good moral teacher, he was a good rabbi, he did good things that we can all learn from, but Lord, Savior, Master, Son of God, Judge, he is none of those. And that is a convenient thing to say. You can understand why that would be so easy for us to adopt Because if we can just trim the edges of the radical Jesus, we can take all of the things that we already love about him because we find them true to be about ourselves. And we can disengage the stuff that we don't like about him. 
We can take on the good things that he did because we consider us to be good people. We can take the good teachings because we like to better ourselves intellectually, but the stuff about being judged for our sin, the stuff about having a, a need for a savior, and definitely the fact of, of, being worship, of worshiping a Lord who sits over us in authority. Those things we disregard. So he's a good moral teacher. He's like my, 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 my professor who grades my papers, and if he gives me an F, whatever, I audited the class. Listen, if the resurrection was absolutely unambiguous in its nature, and it was, for Mary and the disciples, having seen the scene that was laid out before them, began to gossip that to everyone that they knew. Jesus would later return, walk through walls, show himself in bodily form, not just to Mary, not just to Peter, not just to Paul, but to 500 people all in the same town. And from that was a kiln of divine gossip in which the gospel of a risen Lord began to take off like a fire. And because of that kiln, because of that Fire, because of that distribution of what everybody saw, eyewitnesses, it was historically documented, and that's how we know about it today. This is completely unlike ancient mythology. Jesus is different than Osiris. And if the resurrection, because of its unambiguous nature, there are not a lot of options to call Christ except for the words that he put out himself. You're not left with a lot of things to label him. You can't even call him a good teacher if he didn't really rise from the dead because he claimed to rise from the dead. You can't even call him a good teacher if he isn't God because he claimed to be God. And as C.S. Lewis would so brilliantly put it, if Jesus claimed to be all of these things and yet, claim, and yet you call him a moral teacher but none of those things, he is not a moral teacher. He's one of the most wicked liars that we have ever known in all of religion and history. Putting on a front and fooling millions of people for thousands of years, he is most certainly not just a good moral teacher if he did not rise from the dead. He is either a liar or he is a lunatic on par with one of those people that's delusional and thinks that they are John Lennon in bodily form or he is who he describes himself to be. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. Sometimes people respond like the guards. Other times people respond like those women who were also terrified by what they saw. But when the angel of the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, revealed the truth of the resurrection to them, they believed. Look at verse 8 and 9. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Here's the response of the people who believe in the resurrection. They celebrate him. They testify about it to others, and they worship. Oh, Holy Spirit, may this be the mark of this church. Celebration and testimony and worship of a man and a God that we believe rose from the dead. 
Why were there so many different responses by those who were at the scene of the tomb? How is it possible that two types of people can be at the same scene, witness the same thing, and come across away from it with two completely different responses? I think from what we're reading in Matthew 28 that we can at least pull out three things, and these also happen to be the three things that I want us to walk away with for ourselves. Number one, because the resurrection seems to confront our self-absorption. The Bible's testimony of humanity from beginning to end, apart from the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, is that we are self-absorbed. We love ourselves. In fact, we love ourselves to a fault more than God. And in the resurrection, the reason that it provokes and confronts so much is that in the resurrection, God is making known that the universe revolves not around you and I, but around his son. And the implications are being carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit that this is in fact so. And we see it from the moment that he rises from the dead. It's almost as if the universe shifts around the son of God. Gary Habermas, a well-known apologist, historian, and religious philosopher, once wrote that uh, there is a remarkable agreement on at least 12 events among ancient historians, irrespective of their beliefs about Jesus' resurrection. He said, even the scholars who don't believe that he physically rose from the dead can at least agree on these 12 points. These are fascinating. As I read them through, I want you to consider the sweeping effect that the resurrection had on the world and continues today. I quote, at least 12 separate facts are considered to be knowledgeable history. Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried. Jesus' death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing that his life was ended. Although not widely accepted, many scholars hold that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered to be empty just a few days later. Critical scholars further agree that the disciples had experiences which they actually believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. Because of these experiences, the disciples were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify themselves with Jesus to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection. This message was the center of preaching in the early church and was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried shortly after. As a result of this preaching, the church was born and grew with Sunday as the primary day of worship. James, who had been a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he also believed that he saw the resurrected Jesus. A few years later, Paul was converted by an experience which he likewise believed to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. End quote. In other words, based on what we can know certainly happened throughout history, with incredible certainty in the events that transpired throughout history, something changed in history we find monotheistic, hardcore Jews becoming Trinitarian Christians overnight in the middle of Jerusalem, no no less. We find these very same people 
who are so hardcore about, their, uh, about Judaism, following Christ, and uh, at one point being possibly ashamed of Christ, and the next point, dying, boldly proclaiming that he rose from the dead. We find them changing the Sabbath day from Saturday to the Lord's Day on Sunday, intricately interwoven into what they believe is the, the law of Moses, their most important commands from God. They switch it to, to Sunday, echoing what Paul would say in Colossians 2.16, that things like the Sabbath, day and new moon festivals and all such things are merely a shadow of what's to come but the reality is Jesus Christ which is where we get our name for our church Jesus is reality we see Jesus 12 disciples become 20 million disciples in the course of three centuries something even if you don't believe that it actually happened you must believe that history was strangely impacted by those who did The resurrection confronts our self-absorption because we actually see the events of history transpire to focus around Jesus Christ. Not only does the resurrection confront our self-absorption, but it confronts our need for validity. Because in our self-love, in our self-absorption, we work up all of those ways to justify why we should be absorbed with ourselves. Well, I should be mostly concerned with myself because I'm awesome, and here's how I prove that I'm awesome. My job, my money, my income, my spouse, my awesome kids, uh, my skills, my abilities, my my, uh, retirement plan, the list goes on. This is my validity for existing in this life. And our drive for validity comes from our hunger to matter in this life, from our desire to be in control. And the strange thing is, this might come across as a bit virtuous. Right? How many of us in this building are saying something like, like, how in the world could that be bad not to think about myself? Isn't that that a virtue to think about myself even just a little bit? To be concerned about how my life is going to transpire? To be about myself so that I can better others and everyone around me? Until you take that quote-unquote virtue to its extreme conclusion. What happens when people are more self-absorbed than they should be? Have you ever been around somebody who only talked about themselves? and thought about themselves, and talked to you about themselves, even just for an hour, like that person. All of us talk about ourselves to some extent, but that person, that's all that they can do. Even in secular literature, whether it's Seth Godin, or Dale Carnegie, or Jim Collins, we're even told by them that to get by in the professional world, you've got to talk about other people to make them feel better about themselves. That'll give you a line in in this world. Everybody knows that. And so when you're around that person that they can only talk about themselves, it begins to grate on you, right? Because nobody ever wants that person to talk about them. We all want everybody to talk about us. And so we talk about other people in hopes that they'll return the favor. And it's a wonderful cycle of self-absorption. So you know the feeling, being in a room, maybe in a conversation for a few minutes, maybe an hour with someone that can only talk about themselves and you're irritated but you are absolutely miserable if you are with that person for the rest of your life. If that's your spouse, or if that's a loved one, or if that's your employee, or if that's your brother-in-law, or if that, the list goes on. If you're with that person, not just for an hour, but for the rest of your life, you're not irritated, you're miserable. 
Well, what if you were in that place for the rest of eternity? C.S. Lewis describes this in his analogous story, The Great Divorce. He would say, and his answer would be, well, that would be hell. Hell is, if you want to think of it in this way, a place where our deepest torment is to live eternally in our own cesspool of self-absorption, where we cannot get away from this downward spiral where all we can think about is ourselves. That's not misery. That's hell. So it would make sense that we can't save ourselves from hell because we are, the deepest part of us, tragically and addictively in love with ourselves. That's why Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He didn't just rise to confront me of my self-absorption. He didn't just rise from the dead to confront you of your self-absorption and and thirst for validity. He rose to break you of those chains. He rose from the dead not just to confront, but to, to break the tragic power of sin and self-absorption over our lives in hopes of giving us a greater view of something that is more joyous, more glad, and more wonderful than our own selves. To give us a panoramic view of God's glory in the face of Christ. But for that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because nobody can stop falling in love with themselves until they see in a saving way the glory of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, we're told that the Holy Spirit does this. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in your mortal bodies. But listen, once you become a Christian and that's happened to you, we seem to be told by Paul that there is a need for a constant filling of this Spirit. Why do we need a filling of the Spirit so that that belief, that sustaining power of Christ's resurrection might live on in our earthly lives right now? Paul would pray in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, this reason is why I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There comes a time after being confronted with the unprecedented, unambiguous power of the resurrection of the Son of God that we fall on our faces and say, how can I acquire that? And by God's great mercy and grace, he pours out his Holy Spirit that we might be able to receive. Maybe tonight, you do, uh, this morning, you do not know him in that way. For you, your only hope in this life, your only hope from your own self-absorption and sin That chasing of validity in this life can only be for your heart to be raised from the dead. And if you find yourself believing that Jesus in fact did rise, if you find yourself believing that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is already revealing it to you, you just need to respond in kind by saying, I leave my self-absorption, my self-love, and my sin at the foot of the cross, and I follow that Christ into the dark. But for those of you that have already done that, perhaps you need to be filled by the Holy Spirit again this morning. Perhaps you have been spinning your wheels just to be religious, but you have seen in the resurrection of the Son of God that He provides life by His Spirit. 
And if there's anyone in this place, anyone in this church that would say with unified voices, I do not want to be a part of the church of the frozen chosen. I do not want to be a church of the dead dry bones. I do not want to be a part of some dry institution. I want to be a part of the church in which dead bones rise and the testimony of the power of the Son of God expands into his kingdom. Then your only hope is to ask for the Holy Spirit to pour himself out upon you in style. So as we sing, let's ask him. Heavenly Father, we've read from your word who you declare yourself to be. And for some of us, though we see who you declare yourself to be, and even though we believe it, Lord, we don't want just to stay in a place in which we are believing something Intellectually, we want it driven into our hearts like a fire. But what we witness in the book of Acts where people saw that you were resurrected, but then they were told, wait here in this room as the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall receive power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Lord, perhaps some of us would also ask you, Father, to send the Holy Spirit to us that we might be clothed in power not just to be believing, but to be thrilled. Not just to be thrilled, but to testify that there is a God and there is no other God like him and he rose from the dead for our justification. Pray now that you would give us a sweeping view of who you are, that we would fall on our faces today, not like the dead man at the tomb, but like Mary and her friends that rose and left with a holy fear and a great joy. Give us that today as we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen.